you're listening to Mysteries Beyond. What mysteries lie beyond the reach of our senses? And who are you in this vast multiverse? Hello and welcome to Mysteries Beyond. I'm your host, Laura Lavender. Today's episode is going to be a very special one. Not only is it going to be a little longer than 20 minutes, (laughs) but because I'm going to be out this week due to some personal matters that I have to take care of, we will have the pleasure of my good friend and radio host of The Secret Teachings, Ryan Gable, cover today's episode. If you don't know who he is, I would strongly suggest to go check out his show. I'll leave his links in the description box. But he is extremely knowledgeable on everything from the occult, esoteric, to food, history, and politics. He is someone I definitely look up to and who has had a great influence on me. And so this is something that I wanted to try out because I didn't want to leave you guys without a show. But of course, I'll be expecting your guys' feedback. I want to know if this is something that you guys liked or if this is something that you guys didn't like. And please feel free to be brutally honest with me. Your feedback matters to me and I take it into consideration. I do hope that you guys enjoy today's episode. So without further ado... Please welcome Ryan Gable. I'm Ryan Gable, your host, guest hosting and filling in for Laura Lavender here on Mysteries Beyond. I hope that you'll stay with me this evening, this morning, this afternoon, whenever and wherever you are listening to this episode, because I have some very interesting and I think informative information for you pertaining to the practice of Shintoism, which is the indigenous sort of a religion, sort of a spiritual practice. It's sort of hard to narrow and really hammer down what Shintoism is in terms of a practice or belief system, but it is the spiritual, religious center and heart of the domestic or indigenous Japanese people. And it's a religion, a spiritual practice, that there really isn't a lot, if anything, known about it in the West. As a matter of fact, I find myself drawn to the practice of Shinto, and I found it very difficult to find any kind of religious-like or spiritual-like or meditative-like items uh, to assist in my practice. I had to order an entire little altar from Japan because it's just not something you can find not only in the West, which is understandable, but even online, you can't really find anything online unless it comes directly from Japan. So it's uniquely Japanese. And for those of you who don't know much maybe about Japan, uh, there are a lot of theories on the Japanese people, the history of Japan. Uh, The Jomon culture is considered one of the original cultures. Uh, Traditional professor types will tell you, and I actually spoke to 
one of the leading authorities on the Jomon culture, and she sort of disagreed with me. Uh, but I've read a lot of authors and journalists and researchers from Japan who counter and contradict what the mainline professors say about the Jomon culture. And that is that these people were much more advanced than mainline historians give them credit for. And since I'm not from Japan, I obviously am not Japanese and I don't live in Japan, never even been to Japan. I would love to go someday. Uh, I don't know what the domestic uh, feelings are about the history of, uh, let's say, one of the earlier Japanese peoples like the Jomon, but there's a lot of evidence that these people were able to, sort of like the Egyptians and the Phoenicians and many other cultures, travel around the world, maybe not the whole culture, but a very small sect of that culture. There's evidence of the Jomon making it all the way to Brazil. They find evidence in Brazil of little tiny uh, fragments of Jomon pottery, which is very, very unique, very distinct to the islands of Japan. That's been found in Brazil. Now, that could have been traders who went to Japan, but Japan's always been a closed-off nation. It's always been a closed-off country long before it was a country, a closed-off land, uh, if you will, with different clans and tribes. So whether it was traders or Jomon from those islands that made it to Brazil, there's evidence of that, which totally rewrites history. And then there's a little bit of evidence in the official historical record of Japan that the Jomon culture were cultivating rice thousands of years before rice cultivation was supposed to have been a thing. As a matter of fact, on that subject, even bread, which is life in much of the world, even to this day, bread is estimated to now be the process of making bread 14,500 years old. Bread was found a really, really old piece of bread. You don't want to eat this. 14,500 years ago, uh, they've dated it to, you know, give or take a few hundred years, process of dating in, in Jordan, in uh, the Middle East, uh, or Western Middle East. So that's a really old piece of bread. That means that this is way before agriculture. And that means that the process that society, civilization has to go through to get to the point where they can cultivate wheat and the other ingredients they need, and then learn how to make the bread, you're pushing civilization back thousands and thousands of additional years. So whether it's the Jomon culture in Japan, or it's the bread in Jordan, or it's some of the sacred sites in South America, or it's in Africa, anywhere you look in the world, a lot of things predate the predating of even the most sort of liberal-minded, not politically, but liberal-minded in terms of looking at information and, and, and theorizing, the liberal, most liberal-minded professor. And so if you're interested in that area of research, aside from Shintoism, I would highly recommend that you read the work of Graham Hancock. Particularly, you should read a book called Underworld, where he has an entire section on Japan and on the Jomon. So that's important to know before we go any further into what Shintoism is. It's also important to know that, like most cultures, wherever you're listening to this show, most cultures have unique and distinct characteristics and features that other cultures don't have. And it's really hard to judge 
good or bad, moral or immoral, what another culture does when you don't understand the context for it. For example, a lot of Middle Eastern countries, a lot of Muslim countries, they see women in bikinis and believe that that is oppressive. In the West, we sexualize women a lot more to sell products, and some women are okay with that, some men are okay with that, and sometimes women and men are not okay with that. But Western civilization is tending in the direction of thinking that burqas and headscarves are really oppressive. But both sides have a pretty good argument as to why they they think that. So that's just culture in general. But we also have to consider when you're thinking about, I'd assume most of you are listening in the United States or you're listening in South and Central America or the UK for my radio show. That's where most of our audience is. You go all the way to the other side of the world to Japan, the land of the rising sun, and you get a distinct culture of distinct cultures. And I'm not so much talking about Japan today. I'm not talking about the stereotypes of Japan today. I'm talking about the distinctness and the uniqueness of their culture, which makes it stand apart from even a lot of other Asian cultures. And out of this culture is what grew Shintoism. However, it's also important to understand that for a very long time, Japan made subpar products. When Japan was first starting to be open to the world, Japan made very subpar products. In fact, they made products sort of like the Chinese do today. They're really cheap, mass-produced. They mimic. They mimic other things, and they're not really well put together. But that's how the Japanese people got so industrial and so economically powerful. They copied a lot of designs, and then they proceeded to better those designs. And this is a concept in Japan called Kaizen. It means to always do better, to always look forward, to always make something that is uh, better than the last thing that was made. This is sort of part of the motto, I guess you could say, of um, companies like Toyota. You know, always making things better, always making things that last, making things that are going to uh, withstand the test of time and because the Japanese people, just as much as they're, they're um, unique in terms of their economic power today, also in uh, their individual uh, buying and purchasing habits, uh, traditionally in the 20th century, much more uh, very, very harsh about the things that they would buy because they like things to be as close as possible to perfection. And this is something that really intrigues me personally and really draws me into the subject of Shintoism because I, I also have a similar viewpoint. And this is what I try to do with my radio show, The Secret Teachings. It's what I try to do with my, the books that I've written. It's what I try to do uh, you know, when I, when I do a, a, another radio show, when I'm a guest host on whatever the show might be. Or this is the first time I've really guest hosted um, a show like thoroughly by myself just guest hosting another person's show. And I hope I'm doing an okay job so far. This episode will be a little bit longer than, than what you typically get. But I intend to provide you with every little tiny detail because to me, Kaizen is very important. We've spent 10 minutes on just the basis to sort of understanding where we're going in the subject of Shintoism. Now, this isn't going to be like an hour show. It could be. But we just need that, that, that first base so we can build from there. Because if you don't understand 
traditional Japanese culture, even like a little bit. And if you don't understand the concept of Kaizen, the way in which the Japanese people do things today and have done things traditionally, uh, they're very, a very discerning and very particular people, even in the modern day, even younger people, then you're not going to understand Shintoism. So with that being said, Shintoism is not a religion. Shintoism is not a philosophy. It's not a spiritual practice. Although if you do look for books on the subject, you might find them in a spiritual section or a religious section, Eastern philosophy. I know what I'm looking for because I've studied Shintoism for a, for a while now. And I've, found Shint, I've hardly found anything Shintoism. And the one or two books I found have always been in like mixed in with Buddhism. And that's actually a good place to really start. Buddhism is technically a religion. Buddhism is a philosophy. And fundamentally, Buddhism is a state of being. And Buddhism preaches, if I can say preaches, I know Buddhists might not agree with that, but, well, maybe they won't disagree with me because they're so peaceful and in a, in a state of being, but Buddhists typically believe, and I used to think I might have been a Buddhist at one point, I was considering that, that idea, but I'm not drawn to Buddhism because Buddhism teaches that life is inherent suffering. And I don't agree with that per se. I do understand that suffering and pain lead to context and that can lead to growth. And if that philosophy works for you, there is nothing wrong with it. There are a tremendous number, however, of Buddhist hypocrites and people that are not just not doing their best or not doing what they could be doing. They're just, they're just hypocrites. They just like to say, I'm Buddhist because it makes you sound like a good person when you might not be a good person. So Christians get a lot of flack for that, but there are plenty of hypocrite Buddhists. So Shintoism is not really any of these things. Shintoism or Shinto, Shinto, is how you pronounce it, Shinto, Shinto is the domestic religion of Japan, although it's not really a religion. And if you look at the way that it is practiced in Japan, it's sort of like a daily routine. People have altars in their homes. People go to altars all across Japan that are sort of like, they're, they're like 7-Elevens. They're sort of like, um, maybe depending on what city you live in, like city parks. There's a lot of parks. There's a lot of 7-Elevens. They're like Starbucks. There's little shrines all over the place. And now there's a history of Shintoism politically, how it became what it is today. But that's, you know, more so for someone who's really, 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 really interested in the subject. And if you are, I'd be happy to provide you with a couple of books that I've read that I think are really great that can give you those details. Shoot me an email at my radio show email, TST, so T as in Tom, S as in Sam, TST, or S as in Shinto, TST radio at protonmail.com. I'll send you the, the, uh, the list of those couple of books that I, I would recommend you read. So the essence of Shintoism, Shintoists believe, and don't take this too literal, that there are these beings or these energies or these essences or this life force. They're called kami, kami, not communist, but kami, K-A-M-I, uh, K-A-M-I in the, the Roman version, kami. 
And they're a kami of a lot of different things. They're a kami of sacred places like sacred mountains and sacred caves and valleys. Mountains, of course, are very, very important in Japan, but not just Mount Fuji. And then they're a kami of your ancestors. And then they're a kami of simple tasks. For example, washing your hands, cleansing your hands. They're a kami for just about everything. And they are believed to permeate all life, from humans and animals to plants, each functioning and operating as part of a chain or hierarchy encompassing the all. Now, this concept in Japan is much, much older than what we would be able to study as Shintoism today. Most practitioners and masters of Shintoism, more like scholars and practitioners and those that operate shrines, nobody really is sure how old this practice is. But human beings clearly, obviously, regardless of the distance and the time and the space, see the world in a very similar way when they spend a lot of time observing it. Because the idea that all things, whether it's a sacred place like a mountain, a task like washing your hands, or which is, of course, extremely important in most religious practices, even the Knights Templar ritual cleansing and bathing was very important, and uh, you know, worshiping your ancestors, or at least honoring your ancestors, all these things, this kind of triune aspect of the different kinds of kami or the different kinds of spirits, this is something that is almost sounding like polytheism, but it's not polytheism. In the same way that to the average person, Egypt has this pantheon of gods. The Egyptian pantheon is really a polytheistic system. However, as Akhenaten, famous pharaoh, tried to demonstrate all of those different gods and goddesses are really just emanations and extensions of the one true divine source. And that one true divine source, you could today call it Ra or God or whatever you will, but you could call it the sun as well because everything emanates and is from that center piece of life. And the Kami are like that. So what Akhenaten tried to do to Egypt in Africa is a merging of polytheistic beliefs into a monotheistic system. So it's kind of like a complex form of polytheism, which is monotheism. And you could look at it both ways. Monotheism is a complex form of polytheism. Polytheism is a complex form of um, monotheism, vice versa. Get, don't get, don't, don't get my words mixed up there. Monotheism, polytheism. Obviously, mono is one, poly is many. So, kami are kind of like that, so, but they're not, it's not a polytheistic system. It's not the polytheistic system that you might think. Same thing with the Egyptian religion uh, or religions as well. And these kami are broken into three different categories. This is part of the triune nature. It's not just the simple tasks and the sacred places and the ancestrals, but it's also the heavenly kami, which inhabit a place called Taka Magahara. Taka Magahara is the adobe of heavenly gods. So this is where you get the heavenly kami called Amatsukami. Amatsukami that inhabit the Taka Magahara, the adobe of heaven. There will not be a test. Um, the, then there's the earthly kami. The earthly kami are called Kunitsukami. Kunitsukami. 
And then you have the many other kami, the Yao Yorozu. And that is a much harder one to pronounce. Yao Yorozu. Yao Yorozu no kami. Yao Yorozu no kami, the many other kami. So there's a trinity, if you will, in this hierarchy of spirits or this hierarchy of beings. And in Shintoism, there actually is, depending on the branch, because there's different branches of different practices, they're all considered pretty much the same. Uh, There's one supreme deity, which is just kind of like what Akhenaten did again. And that supreme deity, I'm going to pronounce it slow because it's a really long name. It's actually, and this is wild, listen to this. Ameno Minakanushi. Ameno Mina Kanushi. Ameno Mina Kanushi. It's really interesting. Amino Mina Kanushi no Okami. That's the full name. Now that name really should encourage recall to the Egyptian chief god, Ra, who was known as Amun-Ra. What are the chances that in Egypt you have Amino Mina Kanushi no Okami, that's a mouthful, from a closed-off society and land or a series of different interrelating societies, interacting societies, clans and villages, you have that same name represented in ancient Egypt. And of course, it's the basis today of Christian prayer. Amen. So you can see there's a link here between Christianity, Egyptian mysticism and Japanese traditional systems of observances of nature, spiritualism, religion, whatever you want to call it. Now, practice of Shinto is an intention. It's an intention to connect our internal mind and our external body with that of the natural world. The purpose of worship is not to impose an idea or a belief system, but to create a pervasive sense of reverence and awe in order for the practitioner to more easily access the spiritual dimension. Now, I'm not a practitioner of Golden Dawn magic, the Golden Dawn Society, but this is essentially what Golden Dawn magicians teach and learn about. It's contact with your higher self. I think Aleister Crowley was a scumbag, and I think he was a um, smart guy, but I think he was a scumbag. I don't like Aleister Crowley, but he practiced the same, the same kind of a thing, uh, famously, very famously. So it's not about anything in particular except just merging your internal mind and external body with nature and revering nature and accessing the spiritual dimension easier. So it's sort of like a form of meditation, form of prayer. There's no dogma. There's no doctrine. There's no codes. There's no laws. There's no guilt. There's no suffering or any of that in Shintoism, which for some people might make it seem like it's pagan or evil or something, but Shintoists actually see the world differently than a lot of, if not virtually every other religion. This is what draws me to Shintoism. Shintoists see life as inherently good. Life is just good. Misfortune is associated with a warped or a curved or a crooked mind and heart. So it's a very Eastern kind of philosophy. Jesus taught a similar thing. And other uh, prophets and other uh, mystics taught very similar things. But 
This is a very interesting thing because usually everything else is like Islam, Christianity, Judaism, especially Jews make a living off of suffering. Uh, Jewish, that's why Jewish, so many Jewish comedians, right? Jewish comedians joke about that. It's, it's, if you're Jewish, it's good to be a comedian because you can just capitalize on your suffering. Jews are famous for suffering. You know, Christians, they beat themselves. But at Shintoists, it's just a way of life. It's a way of connecting with nature. It's inherently goodness. Misfortune is crookedness in your mind and your heart. So certainly not pagan, and it's certainly, certainly not satanic or evil. It's actually quite the opposite. Because if you say it's pagan or it's evil or satanic or it's witchy, it's nature-based, it's like, well, that actually is the act, the only definition of Shintoism is that everything is inherently good. Any misfortune is associated with a crooked heart or mind. So that's really the only definition of Shintoism. So if you think it's evil, then you fundamentally do not understand the one thing that is actually kind of like a definition that describes what Shintoism is, which means if you have those evil feelings or beliefs, then you, def- you definitely are not uh, a Shintoist. Uh, there's even a name for the curved spirit. Famously, the Japanese have a name for everything. It's called Magatsubi. Magatsubi. Magatsubi is the cause of evil deeds, diseases, disasters, misfortunes, etc., etc., etc. Otherwise, the world is a really beautiful place. Now, Shintoism also doesn't have a devil, doesn't have a Satan. There are Japanese names for these characters. Uh, There's an Oni, which is a yokai. He's an ogre, an orc, a troll, a demon. He could be a lot of different things. And there are uh, famously a lot of female Oni. In Japanese folklore, this Oni is a type of yokai, they're kind of like a fairy, a sprite, or other supernatural entity. There's a word in Japanese, akuma, akuma, which applies to the devil as a demon and to the character we know as Satan or the Hebrew Shetan, Shetan, which is the accuser, who is the accuser or the adversary. So akuma is kind of like the devil, but there really isn't a devil. Uh, evil in Shintoism, that immoral behavior that crookedness is broken into two different categories. And this is where you can see the political benefit of, uh, or the political history of this practice. There is uh, two forms of evil in Shintoism. Amatsutsumi. Amatsutsumi is the moral and social crime. And Kunitsutsumi, Kunitsutsumi is lesser crimes. So things that are not necessarily immoral or social crimes. So there's, crime in a sense. It's not really a code or law, but it's really a, a matter of how to behave. I mean, all, ultimately, this is what Christianity also preaches. This is not a Western, Middle Eastern, or Eastern belief. This is a human belief. This is a, a fundamentally positive thing about the development of what we call theology or spiritualism or whatever you want to call it, that things aren't good. And, you know, when you do things that are immoral and harm other people, thou shalt not harm other people. You know, I mean, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that. The Ten Commandments, which are similar to the Colburn Bible, which is a mixture of Celtic and Egyptian texts. Uh, the 42, I believe it's 42 Confessions of Mat, the goddess of law and order in Egypt, who's married to Thoth, god of writing. Through writing and logic and math and science comes understanding and balance, as in Mat, his wife. And you also find this in the Code of Hammurabi, I believe that's how you pronounce it. I can pronounce Japanese better than Arabic. It's like Hammurabi or Hammurabi or something. And uh, that's a very old 
very old set of of uh, l- lessons and rules. And there's pr- there's a, a famous Japanese prince who created these 17 uh, points uh, of basically good moral and social behavior for subjects as well as for uh, the, not just the common people, but also for the, I say, the, the state itself, that the state has to abide by the same moral guidelines as, as the individuals do. I mean, really, that, what that prince, um, and I'm going to, I'll pronounce his name for you in a second, what that prince did was, was really, a, he was kind of ahead of his time because what he was doing or what he was suggesting is it's kind of like very similar to some of the things that Thomas Jefferson or John Locke uh, were writing about. But the difference is uh, this was in Japan. And one, once again, um, we're talking about a, a society that has been up until the late 1800s pretty closed off to the whole world, very closed off to the whole world. So the fact that you find this in everything from Thomas Jefferson to, um, to uh, I mean, the same kind of moral code and uh, the ancient Middle Eastern, I mean, mystical Judaism, uh, the Code of Hammurabi is from Babylon. You, you, you find these things everywhere and you realize that humans have, um, number one, humans have a very common uh, I say mental or intellectual sort of sort of ancestor, if you will. It's a spirit that drives us, and it's a spirit that it, 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 that uh, you know that animates us, and it transcends time and space and cultures and things like that. Uh, the prince is his name is Taishi Shotoku, and uh, famously, his seventeen point constitution is called Prince Shotoku's seventeen point constitution, or could be called a bunch of other things. Uh, as well, but it's interesting because he's got 17 points, and then in Christianity you have a Ten Commandment list. Although Moses did break some of the other commandments, literally physically broke the tablets, but you've got the Ten Commandments, and then you have the Seven Deadly Sins. So Seven Deadly Sins, Ten Commandments, 17 points, and that is Taishi Shotoku's 17-point Constitution. That's in Japan, and this man um, he lived in 574 to 622 CE way predating Thomas Jefferson, way predating uh, a lot of the other sacred and ancient, um, or not not too, too ancient, but certainly thousands of years ago, uh, uh, customs and practices. And this is, again, this isn't uniquely Japanese. This is something that you find uh, absolutely all over the world. But that point, I think, is important to note about that uh, Prince Shotoku. Uh, likewise, Shinto has no... No polarizing aspects to it. So it's not about one thing or the other. Shintoism accepts all religions. Uh, There's no polarizing concept of heaven or hell, which really heaven or hell is light and warmth in heaven. And the opposite of that is not a bright, fiery pit. Hell is traditionally, if you read Canto, was it 33, 34 of Dante's Inferno, hell is an ice palace. The devil is in, in an ice cube. Usually the de- the depictions, uh, the Japanese name Sora, so or Sora, Sora Sky, doesn't mean the same thing to the Japanese, but like to us, the, the Sky God, George Carlin, uh, Tingoku is heaven, Ame is another name for heaven, um, Jigoku for hell, like Goku, like Dragon Ball Z, uh, Jigoku, uh, the Adobe of the heavenly gods, I mentioned earlier 
is the Takamagahara. Also really interesting, really fascinating. The word Yomi, which is probably the main word that refers to hell, it's the main word that refers to the underworld, is really, really similar to the Indian underworld. And the Indian underworld, talking about Native American Indians, which is why they're called, we call them Indians because Columbus thought he was in, in India. Uh, but the Indian underworld is like, I mean, again, you're talking, I mean, India is getting into Asia, of course, but you have this connection, this weird connection. Um, the, the, the Hindu god of death and justice is called Yama. And if you look at, again, back, in the, and back to the, the, the Shinto practices or, the, or Japanese in general, you get uh, Yomi. So Yomi and Yama and the spelling, I guess, this, I, I'm not a scholar of this, but I know that sometimes the spelling can be, from what I've read, it can be very similar or they can kind of change and be pronounced differently. There's like, a, there's like this weird parallel between the Hindu underworld and the Shinto, or more so the Japanese underworld. So you have uh, Yomi and you have Yama, which interestingly enough, Yama in Japanese means mountain. And the mountain is the womb, which is, which is the cave, and that's kind of the underworld, right? It's where Persephone went in the Greek myth. Um, Izanami no Makoto, Izanagi no Makoto, the creator deities of Japan also have a similar Persephone story that is told. And um, this is uh, showing you once again, whether it's Egypt, it's Greece, it's Rome, it's the, the Americas, it's very similar stuff. But because of the Japanese culture and the Japanese people, Shintoism is like a really distinct version of all this other stuff. It's not like the only thing. Again, there's no dogma, there's no, there's no laws, there's no... There's no concept of heaven or hell or God or the devil. Just doing things that are immoral, doing things that are wrong by any decent standard. Um, uh, and the standards of morality and ethics, generally speaking, especially traditional conservative Japan, conservative Japan, that's evil. But life otherwise is a wonderful experience. And that's kind of the whole idea of Shintoism. And sin is also not a factor in Shinto. There's no word, or there's, there's a word, but there's no concept of, of sin otherwise. Zaiaku, Zaiaku, uh, excuse me, Zaiaku, 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 which can be translated as guilt. But, you know, that's just the Japanese word for guilt. And it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as sin does in the, in the West. One of the most important things about Shintoism, though, is the same important thing you'll find from the Knights Templar to the Christians to, uh, well, Muslims do it. Um, everybody does it. Ritual cleansing. It's meant to wash away all the kegare, or the uncleanliness, the impurity, and the pollution. Whether you're visiting a shrine, whether that's in your home, or it's a local shrine, or a big shrine, like the shrine of Amaterasu, all of these things that I've so far, and for the most part, because we're just about finished with the show, uh, all these things I've described and discussed with you tonight are aspects of Shintoism that you find in extreme versions in a lot of religions. But Shintoism really isn't a religion, and it takes a lot from all over. And it accepts all religions, and it accepts all people. And uh, there really isn't... Um, 
something to profit off of in Shintoism. There isn't any, you're guilty, so give us money. You don't, the only thing that you give like financially is if you choose to put a coin or something in the, in the donation box to keep the shrine going. But most of what people bring is things like rice and seaweed, obviously very big in Japan, but they'll bring things like, well, sake, very big in Japan. They'll bring just basic foods or they'll bring flowers. They'll bring things to offer the kami. And the only thing that you can really do wrong, I guess, in Shintoism is totally ignore the ancestors or totally ignore the daily routine, your obligations. Again, that's a lot of what Shinto is. It's just a routine, obligations, taking care of your obligations, your wife, your husband, your kids, your job, all these things, of course, famously, famously, in some cases, to the extreme in Japan, uh, of how their culture is. Don't know how it's turning today, but at least traditionally and in, in, and in recent decades. Uh, so Shinto is, Shintoism is not any of those terrible, evil, negative things. It's pagan. Well, paganism is not evil either. It's actually a really positive and beautiful system of, of living your life. And it doesn't require any guilt or watchful eyes. And it's, I find it to be a really, really uh, beautiful thing. And uh, perhaps the most important thing is that there's a concept in Japan called shikata. She means to serve and kata means forum. To, so to serve forum. So there's always a way of doing something. For example, tabemas means to eat or tabe kata. So tabe kata, kata the form, tabe to eat, the eating form. It's a way of eating. Kakikata, the way of writing. Kangekata, the way of thinking. Ikikata, the way of living. These ways can be associated with the kami and Shinto in general, which means this is what Shintoism means. The way or the true way. Isn't that what Jesus said in 14.6, the book of John? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Some people might say, wait, isn't that what they said in the Mandalorian? This is the way? Yeah, where do you think they got it from? They got it from religions. That's what all, that's all Star Wars is anyway. Dark and light, good and evil. Uh, sacrificing those innocent children drove Anakin completely to the dark side. I mean... That's where these. That's why those things are. That's why Star Wars is so powerful, even though it's super cheesy and a lot, a lot of it sucks. Not just because of what Disney did to it, but the the word Shinto means kami way, just following the kami way. And what is the kami way? It's like well, fulfilling your duties and doing what's right and making sure that you clean and you purify yourself and you pay your respects and within reason too. It doesn't have to be obsessive and compulsive and. I think it's a really beautiful thing. And there's a lot more about um, Shintoism. I think the last thing I'll mention to you is a little bit of mythology. The story of Izanami no Makoto and Izanagi no Makoto. Izanami no Makoto is sort of like the Isis of Japan. Izanagi no Makoto is sort of like the Osiris of Japan. And Izanami no Makoto ends up in Yomi, the underworld. And just like Persephone... Izanagi no Makoto goes to Yomi to rescue his wife. However, Izanami had eaten food in the underworld, just like Persephone. She ate that pomegranate. See that archetype, that connection to Eve and the apple. Izanagi says to his wife, the lands that I and thou made are not yet finished making, so come back. Izanami informs her husband to wait while she speaks with the higher powers of that land. 
And Izanagi is unable to quail his impatience, so he goes to search for his wife and finds that she's truly dead. And so he leaves and actually gets chased out of the underworld, and she gets held behind. In Greece, Persephone's there for a certain period of time. Her mother, Demeter, mourns her death. And that's really, that's really a, it's an agricultural story. You know, when Demeter is mourning, then what's happening is the crops are dying. It's cold. It's, it's the fall and the winter. It's the fall of man. It's the winter. The four horses of the apocalypse are red for summer, black for fall, pale, chloros, green, or lacking green. So the chlorophyll is removed, the leaves change, and the sun dims, and that's the winter. And then the white horse, spring, coming back to save the world. The four horses of the apocalypse, same kind of a story, Persephone and Demeter and Hades. And uh, in the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, it's Eurydice or Eurydice. I don't speak Greek, so... <laughs> I feel, I honestly, I don't know why. Like Greek is harder to me. Spanish is harder to me. <laughs> Laura, I know Laura laughs at me about that, but it's harder to me than like Japanese. I, I don't know. I don't know why that is. I think it's Japanese is like so rigid and I'm just a really rigid person. That's probably why it makes more sense. I don't know. Cause like Chinese, I don't know, like Korean. I could probably get Korean too. Like Chinese is maybe Chinese. That's that. That's just, that's a lot harder though. But anyway, uh, the point is, Izanami is filled with a lot of shame and rage and chases Izanagi to the surface, just like Orpheus and Eurydice. Orpheus loses his his bride because he looks back. Kind of like Lot's wife. Don't look back, ladies. That's the point. Don't look back because you'll turn to a pillar of ash or dust, depending on the translation. Uh, and so Izanagi goes to some water to purify himself, and he starts to strip his clothes off in the myth, and it's almost an identical version, or at least it's a Joseph Campbell type parallel to the Babylonian goddess Ishtar from where we get the idea of Ishtar, Ishtar, Eostra, the European goddess of spring. Uh, And it's here that the goddess, my favorite goddess outside of Isis, outside of, I don't know, I think just Isis, I think Isis is, eh, it's just just like so cliche to like Isis. You know what I mean? Like you tell people you like Isis and it also sounds really bad. It sounds like you like a terrorist group. So (laughs) I like Amaterasu. Amaterasu, which it's not like, it's not like um, Terasu. The U is pretty usually kind of silent, but it's Amateras. Amateras. Amatera. Amateras. Amaterasu. And uh, that's from where, that's where she's born. And she plays a fascinating part in Japanese mythology because she goes into a cave for three days and the world darkens. And then she resurrects from that cave three days later and brings light and warmth and life back to the world. Where have I heard that before? I'm Ryan Gable, guest hosting for Laura Lavender. I should have said Laura's Laura's my other favorite goddess, and that would have maybe put a smile on her face. Laura Lavender, thank you so much for letting me host the show. I hope that your audience and I hope all of you listening really enjoyed what I had to speak about on this broadcast, podcast, podcast, broadcast. I um, host a radio show myself Monday through Friday, five nights a week. It's on Ground Zero Dot Radio after 
Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis, but you can also find me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you listen to radio shows. My show is five nights a week, though, so I do a lot of radio and it's my living. So if you listen for free, there's like a bunch of advertisements sprinkled in. My show's two hours long, by the way, Monday through Friday. So you got to listen to those advertisements or we have a, a subscription service where you can subscribe without the advertisements. Last but not least, my book, Occult Arcana, has 700 pages. It's a massive book. It's bigger than six by nine. And uh, what we covered tonight was probably from like two pages in that book. I have two sections at the end on Shintoism and Occult Japan, which is more of an overview of the yokai and kaiju and things like that. Really fascinating stuff. Occult Arcana, www.thesecretteachings.info. Again, the, the, uh, the radio email, tstradio at protonmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you really enjoyed this edition of Mysteries Beyond, guest hosted by myself, Ryan Gable. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I really appreciate you tuning in. 